Jodcast, scuttling out from under your bed with James Pamba, Fiona Healy, Monique Henson, Max Potter and Benjamin Shaw. The Jodcast, May 2016, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Benjamin Shaw and I'm here with Fiona Healy. Hi Fiona. Hi Ben. There's someone missing. Yes there is, there is someone missing. Max was meant to be here. But, but he's, he's not here. not here yet. So he may show up sometime during the episode, um, but if not, it's just me and Fiona for now. Waiting with bated breath. Indeed. How are you? I- I'm good, thanks, Ben. I'm uh, I'm better now. Uh, You've I've... had a bit of a rough week. Oh Lord! Oh God! Yeah, yes, I have. It was it was an eventful few days uh, in my home. Perhaps the, the the terrible events that unfolded were as a result of the beautiful hot weather that we've been having. And what happened? Okay, so I was lying in my bed on Sunday night. Uh, and I was asleep, um, uh, and then at about three o'clock I woke up, and I, I wake up a lot during the night because I've got mice. So I was just there listening to this kind of tick, 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 tick above me, and then I saw something scuttling up the wall, like at eye level, next to my pillows. <laughs> oh God, I'm getting scared just even thinking about it. I didn't have my glasses on, so I couldn't really see what it was. Mm. I could just see this kind of black thing, and discovered that it was a massive spider. I mean, you know those kind of hor- horrible river spiders, those those big ones with the big bodies and the big hairy legs. The big death spiders. The death spiders. It was yeah. a death spider. How, I've never heard a spider. Oh my god, it's gonna haunt my nightmares. Like, because <laughs> well, you know, in your waking life, already. you know what struck me about it, like what made me think it's not a mouse. I was just like, there is too many legs. That's too many legs. Um, so yeah. I went outside and I and I waited until it was an acceptable hour and I called my neighbour. Um, but he couldn't find him. We couldn't find him. But uh, yeah, so that that was my week. Right, so. but you're better now. You're with us. I'm I'm uh, right. I'm no longer sleep deprived and terrified. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm I'm doing well and I'm trying to stay calm. Excellent. <laughs> well, in the show this time, Monique interviews Dr. Sambit Roy Chowdhury about dwarf galaxies, and Tim O'Brien answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, uh, Max is interviewing Professor Philippa Browning about her research in this month's Jod Bite. Hello. I'm joined with Professor Philippa Browning from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, and we're going to talk a bit about your career, Philippa. Hi. Hi. (laughs) So what sort of stuff are you currently researching? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm interested particularly in the corona of the sun. So that's the outer atmosphere of the sun that from the Earth you normally only see at a total eclipse. But we have lots of data about the corona, particularly from space telescopes, it turns out one of the interesting things about the corona is the temperature of the corona is about a million degrees or more. And that's very surprising when you take into account that the temperature on the surface of the sun, the photosphere, is only 6,000 degrees. Right. So it means basically the sun, if you like, is hot in the middle. It's actually about 15 million degrees. As you would expect, it gets cooler as you come towards the surface. But then you go out into the atmosphere and it starts getting hotter again. And Mm. that is obviously not what you'd expect. So one of the things that my research is concerned with is trying to explain that. And I say we have a lot of new data from telescopes in space. So we know a lot more observationally what's going on. But what I'm trying to do is develop theories to really explain that. That's one of the problems with solar research, isn't it? Because the sun is so easy to observe relatively compared to other astrophysical objects. We've got so much information on it that it's quite difficult to develop a theory that 
encompasses all of those observational details. Yes, that's right. We have a lot of, um, we, we obviously we don't, when you look at a, a star, you tend to see it more or less as a point um, and you get really just its very much overall properties. But we can see, the, the, for example, the corona in a vast amount of detail and we can see it's got all sorts of fine structure, very detailed, lots of loops and different some regions are hotter than others some regions are brighter than others so very complex structure also very much changing in time as well so you know bright regions sort of come and go and, and change and so trying to develop a model for that is is very challenging as is one way of looking at it because we get more data which is great um, but every time you you learn more you also you have more to explain basically <laughs> and, you, and you know it's um yeah, you can't just you can't just make up a theory sure. and say that's it. You've also got to actually fit the data which yeah. is there. Yeah. So it's putting those things together is 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 a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, what are the the candidates for explaining that unexpectedly hot corona? Right. Well, the one thing I think more or less everyone is agreed about is it's something to do with the magnetic field. Uh, mm. And we know the corona has a, a, a very strong magnetic field. Well, strong in the sense that the magnetic forces are much bigger than any other forces. So if you think you've got the force of gravity, just like in, in any atmosphere, you know, things are being pulled downwards. You've got the force of pressure, just as you have in, in the Earth's atmosphere. Basically, it's sort of pressure differences that give you sort of winds and so on in the Earth's atmosphere. And those forces, of course, are there in the corona. But we have also this magnetic force, which is very much stronger. So it's really the magnetic field, which is sort of controlling everything. And we think the coronal heating is to do with getting energy sort of out of the magnetic field and converting it into heat. But there, mm. within that, there are then basically two competing camps. One idea is it's to do with waves. So you imagine taking the ends of the magnetic field line, a bit like just taking hold of one end of a piece of string and shaking it, and you will get waves moving along the string. So we get waves moving along the magnetic field lines and those waves are carrying energy and that energy in principle can then be converted into heat. The other idea is that we build up what we call some DC or steady magnetic energy in the corona. So there it's more, again, perhaps thinking of the magnetic field lines as being rubber bands. If you just slowly stretch a rubber band, you're putting energy into that and if you were to sort of let it go, it it, it could snap or, or whatever. So you're getting energy as you just basically stretch or distort the magnetic field lines. And there, a lot of the energy is associated with the fact that the fields can be quite tangled or twisted or whatever. Again, like a bunch of string, you could turn the strings and twist it. You could tangle them up into a big mess. And whenever you do that, you basically got energy there. And we can get that energy out in, into heat as well. Right. So those are the sort of two competing theories, basically. Okay. Which one's right? Um, <laughs> nobody knows would be the simple answer. Yeah. Um, although, although, of course, a lot of people think they know. Um, right. But I think in terms of explaining the heating of what we call loops, which are the, the regions where the magnetic field basically comes sort of out of the surface of the sun and, and goes back in again. And those are actually the hottest plasma and really have the, if you like, where the coronal heating problem is is, is most acute because the, you, know, you, you need most heating. 
it looks like in terms of explaining the heating of those sort of structures that the steady magnetic fields the dc mechanism is 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 the strongest contender okay. whereas waves might be more appropriate where you have regions where for example the magnetic field is open and just sort of connects out into space and the waves sort of propagate up and into space but of course, in practice, it may be a combination of the two. We, you know, we like to sort of divide things into nice categories as they've got, you know, one or the other. And as we've said, the corona is very complicated. So it's almost certain that sort of both things are going on. Mm. And it's more a question of, well, which is playing the biggest role and, you know, right, is, yeah. is, is the answer um, yeah. like somewhere in the middle, basically. <laughs> so um, you mentioned there that it was regions of hot plasma. Uh, are you interested in plasma physics by itself as well as solar physics? And what about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the interesting things about the corona is that we have this interaction of the magnetic field with the plasma or very hot gas. And that is going on in a lot of other places in the universe, but also in a lot of places in on, actually on Earth as well. And one example of that is we've got the idea of trying to do fusion on Earth, trying to get energy from fusion, which is actually the same way the sun gets its energy. Um, the sun does it already, but it would be nice to do it on Earth as well. And we could actually, you know, generate electricity. So there again, you have to have a plasma, a very hot gas. It turns out you need very high temperatures to make fusion work. And you can't just put that into some sort of container. So the trick is to use a magnetic field to confine the plasma. And the idea is you would make a sort of magnetic bottle and use the magnetic field to, say, confine the plasma and then get your fusion to give you your energy. So the processes are really very much the same as what's going on in the solar corona. And in fact, the conditions in many ways are quite comparable. The sort of, you know, the temperatures are quite similar and so on. So it's a sort of two-way process. If we study the corona, we learn more about plasma physics and magnetic fields and we can apply that to these magnetically confined fusion plasmas and obviously the other way around as well so one field can very much learn from another and mm. that's something so i have also done work on magnetically confined fusion plasmas again trying to basically develop theoretical models of how they behave okay so how uh, how long is it before we have nuclear fusion on earth till we can ah. not worry about <laughs> energy anymore that that, that that's the big <laughs> Things are making considerable progress and they are currently well on the way to building what's called ITER, which is a big tokamak kind of experimental reactor in the south of France that should really demonstrate the feasibility of fusion power but won't yet be an actual reactor. It certainly won't generate any electricity. It's not designed to do that. It's just designed to um, demonstrate the processes. So that that's well underway now. And hopefully after that, we could start on actually building a demonstration fusion reactor. So people say by about the middle of the century, mm. we could at least have a, a sort of working electricity demonstration. Mm. If not an actual, you might not necessarily be getting your electricity from that process yet. Right, sure. But it would be um, so close to that. it's the classic yeah. 30 to 40 years from now. That seems to be about it, yeah. <laughs> yes. But I think now we've actually got a much clearer view of what the steps are to get from where we are to where we want to be. Sure. Um, but there are lots of problems. There's obviously, you know, potentially scientific problems. There's still to be overcome. There's engineering problems. And there's also sort of political problems, actually, mm. you know, getting people to sort of pay for it and yeah, work I heard together there was a bit of difficulty so with the American Congress recently. Yeah, so. that's right. Yeah, they yeah. they're having a sort of review of their participation. Mm. Um, and it's very difficult getting a lot of 
teams from you know really virtually all over the world to work together on one big project that True. takes an awful lot of coordination and yeah it's enormously expensive as well so it is but not compared with a lot of other things Okay. You spend money on. <laughs> Fair enough. That's true. Yeah. If you say, and if you think of the potential benefits, yeah, it's actually you know, in some sense, not that expensive. I think. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think we have to look forward to over the next, uh, well, in the near future, in terms of solar physics? Well, in terms of solar physics, the exciting thing coming up on the observational side is Solar Orbiter, mm. which I think is hopefully going to be launched in 2018. And Solar Orbiter is going to go basically really close to the sun, about a, a sort of, well, almost a fifth of the distance from the sun that the Earth is. So pretty close. And so it's going to be sitting in the solar wind, very close to the sun, and basically picking up the stuff as it comes out of the sun and measuring it directly. Mm. But at the same time, it's going to be looking at the sun with telescopes and looking at the surface of the sun. So we'll be getting that kind of connection between what's happening in the low corona very close to the surface of the sun and what's coming sort of further out as you get close to the Earth and be able to sort of directly link those things together. Okay. Um, so you will, for example, see some kind of you know, event like a flare or something near the surface of the sun. You'll sort of watch that going on and then all the particles from that will sort of propagate outwards and then they'll you know, you'll be at the spacecraft and just basically watch them go by and measure their properties. Oh, okay. So you can sort of make the connection and gradually start to link things together. So that's obviously a very exciting um mission. No we've never done that. We've never never gone that close to the sun before. Usually we're looking at it from spacecraft which are really very near the Earth, at the sort of same distance from the sun as the Earth is. Yeah. And the other thing also Solar Orbiter will do is it will basically fly out of the ecliptic plane. So the Earth is always going in, you know, an orbit which is effectively more or less round the equator of the sun. So we're only you know, we're sort of basically seeing the sun from one angle, and it's it's very difficult to sort of know what's going on near the poles of the sun. So solar orbiter will sort of fly out of the ecliptic, so it'll be basically looking down at the sun from the top and from the bottom, if that makes sense. So okay. we're seeing the sort of top and the bottom of the sun as right. well as the sides of it. Yeah, and that's very important in terms of understanding the magnetic field. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you think even of, say, the magnetic field of the Earth, you know, there's like a magnetic North Pole and a magnetic South Pole. And so if you want to understand the Earth's magnetic field, if you don't know what's going on near the poles, it's like you're never going to understand it. Mm. So we really have to sort of understand those polar regions of the sun and know what's going on there mm. to understand sort of how the magnetic field is working. And again, obviously from the Earth, we're, you know, we're kind of trapped where we are we can only look at it from from one perspective yeah sure so this this will give us something quite different so i think that's the thing to watch out for solar orbiter okay and when's that coming online well i say it should be launched in 2018, 2018. um but it will take it a while it has to go by a rather circuitous route to get to the sun it's actually surprising you can't just send something directly towards the sun um right. because okay. of the fact that it's you already in, got the orbital motion of the earth so you have to swing round. um i think it's Jupiter to get back so it'll, it'll take it a while but it will start doing stuff on the way as well i think okay. and i think it'll be in about the 2020s when we start getting the the really interesting data back all right well before we go actually you, you told me something interesting recently about some outreach events that you were doing just wondered if you wanted to to give a quick 
shout out to those. Yeah, um, there's something very different. I, 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 I just got um, a little bit involved with, with an event involving dance and the life cycle of stars. So it will be involving a few schools and, and colleges from Manchester who are going to be learning different dances which will be related to how stars are born. And that actually also involves another of our colleagues, Rowan Smith from Georgia Bank Centre for Astrophysics. And then moving on, how sort of stars, you know, stars become, well, our sun is, is obviously just a star. Mm. So it will be, you know, teaching children then about our sun and trying to understand the fact that the sun is a star and how, how, how it behaves. So they will learn about flares and magnetic fields and also how important the sun is for the Earth. But I say they will be doing that through actually developing dances which is obviously very unusual. Yeah. But you can sort of imagine it, there's a lot of twisting and um, <laughs> sort of coming together and passing on energy and uh -huh. all that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a very exciting way for children to learn about science. Yeah. And, um, it's very inventive. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure it will <laughs> stick in their minds in a way that perhaps a, a science lesson um, yeah. in the conventional way wouldn't. So. Well, hopefully... Okay, so there we have it. Interpretive dance and solar physics. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Philippa Browning. Uh, I guess we'll speak to you next time. Yeah, thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for that, Max. Now, Monique interviews Dr. Sambit Raichaudhuri about dwarf galaxies. Hi, I'm here with Sambit Raichaudhuri from MPA in Gashing. Nice to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And this is your first time on the Jodcast, I believe? Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. And although you're at Gushing at the moment, you're coming over to Manchester in the not-too-distant future? Yes, uh, in a couple of months. Yeah? Yeah. Um, well, that'd be good to have you here. If we just want to start off by talking a little bit about what you do. Uh, okay, so my interests primarily lie in these small galaxies which are found kind of around the larger galaxies like the Milky Way in which, which we inhabit. These galaxies are called dwarf galaxies. They are orders of magnitude, smaller in mass, fainter in magnitude, but turns out quite important in the larger scheme of things, especially when you think about how the structure in the present-day universe has evolved and how it, uh, it looks the way it looks, why it looks the way it looks. And if you go back in time, right after the Big Bang, when the first galaxies were formed, what we think today is that the first galaxies that formed are really small, kind of the dwarf galaxies that I'm interested in today. And as time progressed, these small galaxies kind of coalesced or joined together to form the larger galaxies, which we are, dominate the mass in the present day universe. And th those are the galaxies that are so easy to see all around us. So to understand that critical phase in the just after the birth of the universe when the first structures and the first galaxies were forming it's important to understand how when i mean by galaxies were forming how there was some kind of gravitational potential or dark matter we don't know much about it into which the first hydrogen the hydrogen that was all around fell into that dark matter potential created a disk so you have a hydrogen disk, and then that hydrogen got converted into stars. So we need to understand how this process happened in the first galaxies, and thereafter we can make a better sense of the rest of the progression of the universe. So my work mainly has been to look at these nearby dwarf galaxies, which we can study in some amount of detail, and the ones which have some amount of fuel or hydrogen left from which stars are formed, 
to look into those galaxies and try to understand how this fuel is converted into stars. So that's been my main research and I've been doing other smaller stuff around, but uh, we can talk about it. Yeah, if there's needed. plenty of time yeah. for that. So you study these kind of smaller galaxies and you said these formed first and that's what the larger galaxies were made of when those kind of came together. Mm. But now you're particularly looking at these nearby small galaxies. Mm. So are the ones that are nearby, mm. are they really, really... Similar? Similar to the kind of the first galaxies or are they actually like different in subtle ways? That's a very good question. They are actually, we do understand that they should not be similar because... Mm-hmm. The environment in which they form, let's put it in that way, was very different when the universe was young, warmer, much more ways to, you know, ionize the gas, not enough metals around, and other processes which were taking place at the early universe. So the environment was different. The environment today is much, much calmer, let's say. But in some ways, you have to start at some point, right? So these galaxies are nearby. But still, it's only recently that we are slowly attaining the capabilities, which will be enhanced a little more if the square kilometer array comes around, to actually look at the gas in these galaxies in some detail. Still, there are so many unsolved issues because we just cannot absorb them because they're so small. The whole entire amount of signal from various different kinds of phases of the ISM that are coming in, ISM means interstellar medium, Mm -hmm. anything other than the stars that exist Mm -hmm. in a galaxy. The signals that come in from various phases of that interstellar medium are still, especially some phases like the the molecular phase, the gas which is in molecular form, Mm -hmm. is still so faint, especially for the really faint ones, even if they're nearby, that they're very difficult to study. Mm -hmm. So we are kind of doing a first step thing, trying to understand what is happening here, and we'll make an educated guess about what can be the slight differences in the early universe and how that might affect things. Mm -hmm. Generally, that educated guess comes in the form of simulations, where people try to simulate the present structure in the universe by starting from the very basics numerically and in different ways. And there, these kind of assumptions and relations and what you understand, they are put in as input to mm-hmm. see if we can finally match with what we are seeing. So that's the way the whole game is played. But mm-hmm. uh, So therefore, observations are crucial to start this process. So that's basically it. So we they have... kind of go hand in hand, the observations and simulations, because they offer you different insights. In some sense, yes. I, though I'm not uh, very sure how how much it, it's starting more, but mm-hmm. I am not very sure how much crosstalk there is between these two kind of yes. studies. Yeah. But for anyone working in these sort of areas where you know that your your final aim is to understand the structure around mm-hmm. the universe, and by the structure I mean much larger than what our galaxy itself, mm-hmm. beyond our galaxy, beyond our local cluster, beyond maybe our supercluster. Mm-hmm to understand this whole grand scheme of things that we see around us. So when you are working in either sense, there has to be some amount of crosstalk, though it's not always the case, but I guess that's how it should be. Yep. Yeah, I think there's lots of cases of that in research, though, where mm-hmm. there should be more interaction than there is <laughs> between different groups. So the impression I'm getting is whilst you're studying this kind of some of the smaller objects, that's giving you an insight into the larger scale of the universe. So you mentioned that you're particularly like trying to observe the interstellar medium, so the gas and dust in these small galaxies. And you said it's very difficult to observe the molecular hydrogen, molecular yeah. hydrogen you're looking at in these galaxies. So why are you particularly interested in molecular hydrogen rather than 
ionized hydrogen or so both from theoretical considerations as well as more and more recent observations of galaxies around us and our own galaxy molecular clouds where molecular clouds are like the nurseries where stars are forming mm-hmm. uh, so detailed observations show that it's as i told you as you kind of expected the phase that correlates best with star formation is first of all the really dense gas which collapses to form stars mm-hmm. and that dense gas is kind of cocooned inside the molecular hydrogen which basically is the fuel of star formation so the molecular hydrogen collapses gravitationally mm-hmm. and that forms stars so you kind of expected it and it's uh, being seen that the molecular hydrogen is uh, related to star formation the tough thing about molecular hydrogen is because of the structure of the molecule mm. it's very hard to observe it doesn't have any uh, strong detectable emission lines which is the, mm. our favorite way of observing stuff right so the wavelength that it emits at isn't very specific to molecular hydrogen that would have been fine it yeah. is very faint okay. the transition is because of it, it's a very symmetric molecule mm-hmm. and you don't really have a transition which is strong enough to be observed there is uh, but okay. it's very faint it gets drowned out by everything else around it yes mm-hmm. that that's the, that's always the issue mm-hmm. right you have to detect it so the favorite way of people to locate where molecular hydrogen mm-hmm. will be was to look for the next two most abundant elements which mm-hmm. are carbon and oxygen mm-hmm. okay um, let me keep aside helium for the moment just carbon the next two ones mm-hmm. carbon and oxygen and they form this uh, molecule the, car- the carbon monoxide molecule yep. which is generally found in these molecular cloud complexes mm-hmm. there is a way to relate the amount of emission you are observing from this carbon monoxide molecule with the amount of hydrogen there is now the issue comes in in i briefly probably mentioned in these kind of small galaxies metals are less metals are generally formed through star formation mm-hmm. so in the first galaxies there would have been almost no metals yeah then the first stars came they blew up in supernovae the metals were ejected into the galaxy then out of the galaxy maybe into the medium around the galaxy called the circumgalactic medium then as later generations of galaxies formed and coalesced together these the materials from the circumgalactic medium was again absorbed into the galaxy mm. and they stayed there these metals in mainly in the form of dust grains are very crucial in forming this molecular hydrogen from which the stars will form yeah. itself there are a couple of ways in which they are crucial for this molecular hydrogen to form now the thing is if the metals are less what happens is in the throughout the galaxy there's a very strong field of ultraviolet radiation mm-hmm. that is created by older stars that have formed even sometimes background quasars and stuff but let's say the older stars that have formed so this ultraviolet field that runs through the galaxy the hydrogen needs to be shielded against it so that it can convert from the atomic to the molecular phase atomic mm-hmm. hydrogen is the most abundant element it's everywhere but it's warm generally it is bold in, in in various kind of phases much of it is warm some of it is cold you have to turn it from the warm to the cold first and cold atomic hydrogen it will go to the molecular hydrogen phase and to do that you need metals or dust to shield it now if the metallicity is lower maybe the hydrogen is forming this carbon monoxide is even more critically dependent whether it forms on this metallicity because of the same shielding effect mm-hmm. the carbon and oxygen atoms should exist as atoms then they should join together to form the molecule for all of this to happen the background field should be shielded against mm-hmm. so what happens is in these kind of low metallicity environments the hydrogen was supposed to be traced by carbon monoxide 
but maybe for similar amount of hydrogen that is present, the amount of carbon monoxide that is present falls very quickly. So now this not only do you have intrinsically less amount of hydrogen because these are small galaxies, yeah. right? Even if the ratio of molecular hydrogen to carbon monoxide was same, mm. you would have had a less a smaller signal. It. Now it is compounded by the fact that with the metallicity and hence the dust going down, mm. that amount of carbon monoxide is mm. falling exponentially. Let's because say. you don't have the shielding, which and, means that it can't cool yes. and it can't form. I see. So it's very difficult to not only in necessarily in these galaxies, even the say, very outskirts and low metallicity regions of spiral galaxies, large spiral galaxies, it's very difficult to observe carbon monoxide mm. and therefore to interpret how much hydrogen there is. Therefore, this is the basic problem. People are trying to get around the issue by many ways. Also, I am sure uh, people may have heard about the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, the ALMA, uh, ALMA, ALMA yeah. which is Kamawa. Mm -hmm. So ALMA is a much more sensitive instrument, which is which has already been started to be used by various people to look at the carbon monoxide emission mm -hmm. in these kind of smaller galaxies. So things will change, but it's still uh, difficult to do for these mm -hmm. kind, particularly these kind of galaxies. So, oh, something I just wanted to clarify is I know when astronomers talk about metals, they often mean something quite different to what most people think of as metals. Right. I should have explained that. Yes. Oh, no, no. That's so anything uh, other than hydrogen and helium are metals. Yeah. It's one of those things, astronomers, kind of everything except for hydrogen and helium is a metal. Yes. But it's good to clarify yes, that Yes, one. of course. It's, it's um, not like the iron and nickel. And, of course, they are also there. They're included. Yeah. Yes, but they're in so, so, so minuscule proportions compared to the... Uh, mm -hmm. So I think mostly metallicities are measured by measuring the emission from generally much what's less atomic number uh, mm -hmm. elements like carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, stuff, yeah. stuff like so that. So the lighter elements, yeah. Um, just because there's much more of them, I suppose. Yes, it means um, you can at least detect it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the other stuff is very hard to detect, except from stars maybe. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're kind of hoping that ALMA will um, lead for some developments in this area. Like, Do you think it's the kind of thing where you'll see kind of big breakthroughs with ALMA or are you really waiting for the SKA before you can get anywhere? So they will look at very different things. As I mentioned, ALMA is probably for looking at the molecular gas in some mm -hmm. sense and through uh, using other submillimeter instruments and arrays, people have already started pushing the limits for observing uh, the molecular hydrogen in these kind of low metallicity, small star-forming mm -hmm. galaxies which exist around the big galaxies. ALMA will push it. It depends. Uh, it, it's not very clear how. It, only time will tell. Yeah. Because ALMA can observe at very high resolutions. Mm -hmm. So it is, for the moment, I guess, we are, are picking out the same molecular clouds, the central or the very dense positions, portions of these clouds. The atomic hydrogen from which this molecular hydrogen is mm. supposed to form, the present day interferometers that are used observe at a much coarser resolution. Mm. So in that sense, when SK comes along, it will be sensitive, uh, better resolution. In mm -hmm. all, always it will be, in all these terms, it will be better. But as you can understand, they're, they're probing kind of two different phases. Very different regimes. Yeah. Uh, and, and phases of the ISM. But there are ways to probe maybe the molecular hydrogen content to other mm. lines too, not necessarily um, the carbon monoxide line. Or you can go take a circuitous route using dust. Mm -hmm. So all these kind of 
possibilities exist. So any Alma breakthrough in this area hmm. will not create maybe as much of a buzz as, as it is creating regarding, say, planetary disks or various other stuff mm-hmm. because it's not very much in the consciousness of people. It's it's not a very... Mm-hmm. Let's let's how do I how should I put it? It's not a very very hmm, fashionable fashionable area. Yeah. Yes. So, um, but whatever we understand of the process might have much deeper and much longer lasting effect on mm. the way we understand structure formation. Mm-hmm. Because, well, maybe this is time to mention the two things that anyone who works on dwarf galaxies does mention. Mm. There are some very interesting things that affect especially the dwarf galaxy end. What do you mean by effect? Mismatches between what is observed and what is predicted from these kind of simulations. Mm. And there are a couple of big mismatches both affecting this dwarf galaxy end. And what are the mismatches? One of them is the for some time now the the simulations which mainly trace the major amount of mass that is in the universe which is dark matter and how this dark matter evolves with time and how the structures are formed and then post facto put in gas and then star formation on these uh, dark matter structures (laughs) yes because it's computationally you have to set limits those are limits are being pushed Mm -hmm. when it uh, it was done in this way what was found was the amount of dwarf galaxies that you should have seen as you go down in mass. So it's basically a function of how many galaxies in a particular range of mass should exist. So mm-hmm. you go down, it should continually increase according to dark matter. Uh, so you have more and more smaller more, And not only more and more, a huge number of them. Mm-hmm. Observationally, it was nowhere as close. Okay, mm-hmm. there were orders of magnitude difference not even going to very low masses. So is between, this the missing satellites This problem? is basically the missing satellites problem. Okay, so this is one of the things. People have been, some very clever people have been trying to find out ways to understand why it's happening in this way. And there are promising leads mm. to understand what what might be happening, why uh, the reality is different from what you might naively in, interpret f- just by looking at, say, dark matter potentials. And if you understand the physics a little bit more, and that's why, that's why this physics comes in. This, so you really the, have un- to understand, understand how physics. the gas yeah. is uh, converting into stars and how... And this is crucial, how the stars in turn affect the gas. Because stars put in energy into the gas. They disturb the gas around it. Mm -hmm. They sometimes blow out the gas. And this happens a lot in the small galaxies. And the second mismatch that was happening between what was predicted from these kind of dark matter simulations and observations was how the mass profile, how much mass there is with increasing radius, Mm -hmm varies between how what is observed or at least interpreted from observations and what is expected from this dark matter simulations. How the dark matter mass profile should be and how we observe it to be. Mm. So this was basically the core cusp problem. Yep. Okay. Even here, uh, sometimes very similar kind of effects, like the same thing I told you, how stars affect the gas mm. and in turn the dark matter gravitationally are promising to be the major uh, solution towards these kind of problems. So these small galaxies, which are kind of in the backwaters of astronomy for a long time, are turning out to be very crucial players. Mm -hmm. And even though what they kind of do not have in impact in terms of mass or brightness, Mm -hmm. they're kind of making up in terms of how they actually control stuff before. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the issues. 
maybe this is a time where I should quickly relate to one of your previous questions about the dwarfs that formed right after the beginning oh, yeah, of the yeah. universe and the present comes in. That might be one of the reasons why this discrepancy in mm. number counts, the missing satellites problems, that has been suggested as one of the reasons that in the early universe, there was a certain cutoff, which was applied due to physical reasons on the mass of the dark matter halo, which could form dwarf galaxies. Mm. So there are a lot of dark matter halos which just kept hanging around there without finally forming mm. galaxies. So that mm. is one of the ways so to solve the problem clumps of dark matter but without any gas and stars in them yes. so we wouldn't see them because they wouldn't be bright that's the yeah. thing so i am not an expert in this field so yeah. i don't know how people might have uh, thought about observing them so mm. there are uh, cases i think where there have been claims of finding a dark galaxy which has gas but no stars mm. Okay. Oh, wow. That's so, still an interesting point in itself. Or yeah. really faint galaxies which have a lot of gas in them, mm. but very little amount of star formation. Mm -hmm. So all these kind of things exist. In many ways, we are at the very uh, beginning of our understanding. So mm. new observations come in every day. Various kind of claims are happening. A lot of galaxies are sometimes being found in a survey, very yeah. faint ones. There have been recent... Uh, papers which have come out about founding lots of small galaxies but uh, so at some point we will sit down and uh, you know put everything together but it's very much an active field trying mm. and we're trying to understand what is going on but that makes it an exciting place to be right yes of course yeah um, and i think as well like so you've kind of got two points on it and from the observational point of view you're just getting to the point now where you can start making some good observations and getting more numbers but then on the simulation point of view as well they've probably in the past struggled with resolution and as you were saying they've massively relied on just looking at dark matter and not thinking about all of the astrophysics and maybe in the next few years we'll be at a point where they can actually get some of the astrophysics in as well no the, the astrophysics is already there but mm. the astro it was limited by the limitations of the observations themselves mm. oh right okay right because you, so we just don't have enough information yet yes so and it, it's as it will get better the observations mm. will get better the recipes the equations that are put in mm. will become more and more refined mm -hmm. okay and so it's a back and forth process mm -hmm. I think dark matter simulations have been a huge success story overall. Mm -hmm. Just that using a supercomputer, you can almost create an entire universe. It, yes. it, it's, it's quite fascinating. And so it's just a matter of probably fine-tuning and mm -hmm. trying to understand. And the, the thing is, if everything was explained, then where will be the fun? How will you that's learn? That's true. That we'd, have, we'd be out of a job. So the science comes <laughs> out from the mismatches. Yeah. So you, once you see that, okay... There is a difference between what you're observing and what you're seeing. You try mm. to understand what is the physical process which caused mm. this mismatch. So that's where the science comes from. And you'll continuously do it. And uh, hopefully that will keep many people interested in science, astrophysics, mm. and the bigger questions. And you'll continue. That's yeah. All. Yeah. So it's a really good point. Thank you for coming on the Jodcast. You're welcome. It was, again, it was a pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Hopefully we'll have you on again in the future. Thanks for that, Monique. So, uh, a few housekeeping things. Our survey has gone live. Oh, that's really exciting. I'm so excited. Have we had, have we had any responses yet? We've had about 30 responses, um, oh most God. of them positive oh, so wow. far. Oh, wow. Oh, fantastic. Um, oh, can, we, can, can I look? Can we look? Uh, you can. Um, we'll send you a link. Please um, do. But, yeah, we love, have no internet here I love in the hearing, studio. So we I can't love hearing what people think of us. It's fantastic. Yes. Um, yeah, you like, you like surveys. I love you? surveys you like and I love data and I love collecting information and it's just my favourite thing in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> How many times have you filled in this survey? <laughs> 29 times. 
<laughs> I've already joked. <laughs> um, so there is a link to the survey on our Facebook page and on our Twitter page, um, or you can just go to jodcast.net slash survey. Please do fill it in. It'd be really good to know what you think, if there's anything you think we should change, if there's anything you think we're doing well, if you think it's absolutely abysmal, that's all well and good, but please tell us why. Tonight, um, I'll be in a suit. <laughs> I don't laugh. <laughs> it's true, he will be in a suit. I will be in a suit. Uh, he's so... going to uh, the Make a Difference Awards, Yeah, uh, which we've been nominated for. We have. Um, so you may remember from a while ago, we won the Better Worlds Award, which uh, was the um, Engineering and Physical Sciences Division's uh, internal award for things that make a better world. And I guess. we got a biodegradable plaque, which I really take issue with, because you want a plaque to last forever. <laughs> well, this one won't. It it will uh, it will it'll biodegrade. Be, um, biodegrade, much like this one... the Jodcast and all of mankind's achievements. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, it's ultimately futile. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But this award is, is very much the same award, but this is a university-wide award, so we, we are up against some quite stiff competi- competition, including the Joddle Bank Discovery Centre itself. Oh, wow. So, oh, um, oh, interesting. So Charlie and I are going off to a swanky do tonight at Whitworth Hall in, uh, in Manchester, um, where we'll be sat around a big round table and hopefully come back with an award of some kind. Will, they give, you, will they give you food? Uh, there is a buffet lunch or a buffet dinner. Buffet yes. dinner. Yes. Oh my god. Well, by the time this goes out, um, you'll hear how we've done. Um, so we'll keep you posted. Well, on hopefully. That. Yes. Maybe we'll get ourselves a biodegradable trophy. Maybe you never know. Um, anyway, did you see the transit of Mercury? I did not, because that was on Monday, and I was avoiding the sun because I was sleep deprived. Because uh, of the spider. Because of the spider. Right. But but other people saw it. Everyone in my office was all excited. They were like, Fiona, Fiona, do you want to come out to the roof? We're looking at the transit of Mercury. And I was like, <laughs> You're going to stay underground in the server room. Yeah, I was just Richmond. hiding. I was just hiding under a blanket on the armchair in my office, <laughs> trying to sleep. <laughs> it was sad. Uh, well, um, Sam and Rookyard and I went up to the top of the car park, which is adjacent to this building, to see if we could see it. I took my eclipse glasses. Oh, did you? Um, we knew we had no chance to see but, it. But like, you I... didn't have any kind of magnifying equipment whatsoever? None whatsoever. I, I, was, I was hoping that I would discover that I had better than average eyesight. Okay, okay. Um, How did that I go? Don't. Don't um, I saw the sun. I saw nothing on it. Oh, um, poor Mercury. So, yeah, I didn't see it either. But I, I, I tried. I tried. That's all I can do. Um, Yoda the Oat, the, the, the guy that runs our Flickr group, posted a, a nice picture of uh, the transit on Twitter, which I think we've retweeted, so oh, check that out. So we should also mention that we had some quite interesting cover art from the last episode. Um, uh, there's a man called Travelling Matt 72 Matt with one T, um, who's a, a Twitter user who is called Matt and travels, apparently. Or else um, it's some sort of flying carpet. <laughs> <laughs> So far, we we only have a, a yeah degenerate solution for that. Yeah, yeah I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, apparently he makes uh, quite a few of these images, and, and Charlie managed to uh, to get his permission to use one of those. So oh, check wonderful. out some more of his work at Traveling Matt Seventy Two on Twitter. So now we move on to the part of the show uh, where we talk about all the things that didn't really fit in anywhere else. Sure. So. You've heard probably multiple times in the past various accounts of what we think the sun might do when it expands to become a red giant and what the fate of the Earth might be. Um, So we've long heard differing opinions on what what the ultimate fate of the Earth is uh, when the sun finally leaves the main sequence. Some have claimed that the Earth will survive. Um, Others have predicted that it will be completely engulfed. And one group even suggested a few years ago that Venus might survive, which would be... Should we all move to Venus? Um, Wait, hang on. My very... But Venus, Venus is Venus is nearer to the sun. Nearer to the sun. Um, so this this group suggested that Venus might just be okay. Um, so should, so we shouldn't move to Venus because if Venus is going to be okay, we're going to be okay. 
Exactly, yeah, so okay, we should be fine. Okay, However, we don't think that's going to happen. Um, two scientists from Mexico and the UK have calculated what they think might happen um, using the latest in what we know about how the sun will evolve. Um, so what's the future for the sun? Um, for about four and a half billion years, it's been happily burning its core supply of, of hydrogen, um, turning it into helium on what we call the main sequence of stellar evolution. Sooner or later, though, this supply will run out in about five or six billion years, so no need to panic quite yet. So at this point, the, the core of the sun will begin to contract and a shell of hydrogen around the now inert core will, will begin to burn into helium. Okay, so once it's finished with the, with the core, it starts burning the next bit out. Yeah, so it'll collapse inwards, the shell will ignite, there'll yes. be an inert core and there'll be hydrogen burning and the helium, because it's heavier, will sink to the centre and build up yes. a helium core yes. for the sun. As they expand outwards, they cool to a red colour and that's when we talk about the star being on the red giant branch of stellar evolution. Um, now, during its post-main sequence evolution, the sun will lose quite a lot of its mass. And so as the mass of the sun has dropped, uh, the gravitational attraction between it and the planets will change and the planets will move outwards. Their oh. orbits will expand. So it's going to be getting bigger, but we're going to be we're getting going to be moving further, further away. Out. So the question is, will the planets move away fast enough such that they can <laughs> escape the expanding It's going to be like sun. a kind of an Indiana Jones type situation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. So while these people have done this, they've calculated this using models that account in detail for how the how we think the sun will lose envelope mass, which has been a big sort of uncertainty in right. stellar evolution models yeah. up until now. And they find that Mercury and Venus are engulfed. Not really any surprise there. But in these calculations, the Earth goes the same way, unfortunately. It doesn't move out far oh. enough or fast enough for us to escape the growing sun. So oh. But at least, we're at least we're trying. At least we're trying. So yeah. happy, happy, joy, joy. We're going to be homeless. Yeah. Um, but it's not lost because with the evolution of the sun, not only will the Earth move outwards, but the habitable zone will also move outwards. Oh. And actually what they've calculated is that as uh, as the sun expands, the habitable zone will, will actually move out into the Kuiper belt. <gasps> now and that there's a lot one... of water in the Kuiper yeah. belt, which will then become liquid. Just for a reminder, the habitable zone is the uh, region around any star, star at which the temperatures are favourable for water to exist as a liquid, which we think is uh, a prerequisite for life as we know it. There has to be some sort of condensable solvent. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go too far towards the star, water can't condense. If you go too far... If you go too far out from the star, uh, water is a solid. Um, and so these th- people think the habitable zone will, will include some of the Kuiper belt, given is there's currently lots of ice out there. The Kuiper belt is the one beyond Pluto. Yeah, Pluto and beyond Kuiper belt for, right. for a while until we reach um, the Kuiper belt cliff. And now, didn't it take Voyager like 70 years to get out there? Yeah. So hadn't we better leave like, okay, no, actually, no, we're good because it's going to be six billion years before this happens. It's going to be six billion years before this happens. But the problem with that is there, there is a caveat in that the sun is slowly growing in its luminosity. And so it is getting hotter. So the Earth, over the next few hundred thousand years, will get hotter. Yes. So we actually haven't got that long to do it. So we better start making tracks so for the Kuiper Belt tracks, pretty yeah. soon. So um, before this happens, we better find an intermediate home somewhere in the, in the, in the middle of the solar system before we end up moving out to, to the Kuiper Belt. Well, we can't really live on home. Jupiter. There's not really a solid surface there, is there? No, no. Oh, oh, but the moons. We could live on one maybe of the moons. moons like, yeah, like maybe Titan. we could terraform Titan. Yeah, yeah. Moons. Titan's a scary place. There's lots of weird stuff in Titan, though. This is a... Yeah. All the things. Is that the one with all the strange things in the in the frozen sea with the volcanoes and the? It's eerily Earth-like. I think. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's largely methane. It uh, methane's like condensable the... the same way that waters are condensable here. So. Sounds like the start of a sci-fi horror movie. Hey, let's all go to Titan. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> but if we go to Titan, we might find the Huygens probe, which would be cool. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah. I would yeah. like to find that. So, so Ben's going to go off and look for the Huygens probe. <laughs> 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 and we'll get back to you. <laughs> Excellent. So now, 
Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about my odd and end, and we're all gonna learn some new words, or at least I learned some new words today because I was uh, I was looking up my odd and end on the bus this morning, and um, uh, usually usually that's something I can pull off because usually my odd and ends don't take me that long to learn about. But this one this one was both really interesting but slightly complicated. But I was like, no no no. So anyway, uh, I'm reporting to you today about um, uh, the Sentinels' first map of of the sea surface, uh, which was. Um, being talked about today on the BBC. So so to fill you in there what that is. Firstly, before we go any further, it was news to me and it may be news to you that the sea isn't the same height all the way around. So you know when we talk about like sea level, that's yeah. not really a thing. So it's right. actually variable in its levels. Some bits it's higher and some bits it's in fact on the BBC they describe it as hills and valleys. On the sea surface. On the sea surface. Wow, okay. Yeah, I know. I was just... Because all the literature I've been able to find about this has accepted this as a given and doesn't give it any explanation as to, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hang on, hold up. Why Why? Why is it not the same level all the way around? Because, you know, everything we learn about physics and, 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 and liquids and fluids tells us, no, it'll just be the same. It'll be flat, but it's not flat. But it's not. It has topography. Yeah, it has topography. So so that that um, led me on to learning um, about the Sentinel satellites, which are um, uh, satellites that have been la- launched by, um, by the Copernicus project. So the Copernicus uh, seems to be a venture of the ESA, and um, its mission is to find out all stuff about the Earth. So they're just interested in looking at Earth, mm-hmm. not the other planets, just Earth. So they've sent up a bunch of satellites called the Sentinels. Um, I think they're up to Sentinel-6 at the moment. Right. Uh, which all have different responsibilities in terms of finding out uh, different things about what's happening on the surface of the Earth. And um, so Sentinel-3A is the one that's been looking at the oceans. Um, and they have just released their first map of the ocean topography. And you can see very clearly in it that some bits, so the the, the, the bits that are, that they're kind of measuring it against a reference, which is some data that was taken in the 1990s. Um, but even then, in the 90s, they seem to, to, to be aware that the sea wasn't the same level all the way around. This just seems to be news to, to me and Ben today, <laughs> 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 which is a bit strange because uh, we're really very clever. Um, but anyway, anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so um, so the, the higher up bits uh, are indicative of warmer sea temperatures so in other words, so they're calling them anomalies. The bits that are higher than kind of the, the reference level are called anomalies. And positive anomalies, so the higher up bits, um, are associated with warmer waters and a deeper thermocline. The thermocline uh, is the transition layer. It's the layer between where the, the warm water at the top of the ocean um, meets the colder water beneath so the kind of okay. the little the layer between those two sections of the ocean, as it were, is called a thermocline. So it's so, more of a step in temperature. Yeah, exactly. Gradient. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's it. There's kind of a cold bit and a hot bit, and then the thermocline is sort of the, the the bit where those are sort of mixing in and meeting. So when you say the height, what are they measuring the height with respect to? Um, so what they say here is that they're measuring it with respect to um, histor- a historical data set gathered by 
um, satellite altimeters since the early 1990s. So I don't think they're even measuring it with respect to one fixed level. They've always known it had different levels. It's news to me, but they've always known. (laughs) Uh, It's just that even since the 1990s, the levels have been changing. And of course, um, what this is all pointing towards is global warming and generally rising sea levels. But what they're noticing is that the sea levels aren't rising all at the same time. Uh, or sorry, they're not all rising at the same rate, depending on where you are in the planet. Right. So what they're hoping to gather is some kind of some more detailed information about how sea levels are changing um, so that we can know um, which bits to evacuate first, I guess. Because <laughs> also in the news, also in the news this this week, uh, depressingly, was um, a story about how I think was it five tropical islands so far have just been oh, completely, been completely swallowed. swallowed. Out, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a serious, real problem, you yeah. know. And uh, so I think I think what they're doing here, which and it sounds like a fascinating project. So all the different sentinels are gathering different kinds of data about the sea and the land. I mean, mm. another thing that Sentinel Three A does is is gather data about the color of the ocean because um, that tells us things about like algae blooms and stuff, yep. um, which is also affected by global warming. And they gather all this data up. Uh, and uh, and it's really exciting for me because I love data. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of want a job with these people now. <laughs> it does sound like a cool job. It'd it also does. be interesting to see how the uh, height of the sea level scales with the local surface gravity as well. Yes, exactly. I mean, maybe perhaps they correct for that. I don't yeah. know. I'm like, you know, they're saying in the map um, that they show on the BBC, you can identify the Gulf Stream, you know, because that's a different yeah. temperature to the rest of it. Um, so it's just, uh, it never crossed my mind that... I mean, obviously, we know that different bits of the ocean are hotter mm. than other bits, but it never crossed my mind that that would correspond to a higher level as such. So that's a, uh, and it affects things like currents, which makes sense, I guess. Mm. It makes sense that if there's currents, it's probably because there's, you know, maybe pressure differences. Yeah. Um, one bit being higher than another might influence that. I mean, it's, it's, so it's really interesting. And actually, um, what I'm not really talking about here, but what I think is also interesting is how the satellites themselves actually worked. They had a bunch of different satellites all flying together mm. in formation. Um, uh, and the name for that, the name for a bunch of satellites all flying off together is called a constellation, which is really cool. It's a very cool name. <laughs> it is really cool. <laughs> it's cute. Um, uh, so yeah, they have a constellation of satellites and um, that's how they've, like, they, it was really quite technical and detailed how they even gathered this information because obviously yep. they wanted to get complete coverage of the earth and they needed to correct for like tides and things so uh, so it's really really cool the BBC have a really nice article about it which we'll link you to and we'll also link you to the Copernicus website so um, you can find out more information for yourselves about this uh, this exciting project uh, and now for someone whose knowledge is far above sea level Professor Tim O'Brien answers your questions in Ask an Astronomer For this month's Ask an Astronomer, we are joined by Professor Tim O'Brien. I get the impression that Tim is one of the busiest people on the planet right now, so I'm very grateful that he's been able to join us. Charlie tells me it's been about two years since you were last on the Jogcast. Oh, we did look it up. It was January 2014. January 2014. <laughs> so what have you been up to since then? <laughs> uh, well, I, uh, I think I got busy because I started spending half my time being an associate dean, which is a sort of administrative job in the faculty. So 50% of the time I was doing that, plus the other 150% of my time I was doing other things. So yeah, I think I fell off the Jogcast uh, wagon. Yeah. I'm getting back on, so that's good. Okay, uh, I've actually heard you in the media quite a lot recently, chatting yeah. about Blue Dot Festival. Blue Dot's going to be great, I think. It's a music and science festival at Jodrell Bank at the end of July, so still tickets available if anybody's <laughs> interested in buying one. If you look at uh, discovertheblue.com, you'll find all the information. 
but it's basically building on some things we did back in uh, 2011 to 2013 where we had uh, music festivals at Jodrell. So bands like Elbow and Sigur Ross and uh, New Order and these sorts of people. And then alongside music, we had some sort of science festival as well. But what we're doing this time is really as a full sort of camping festival over the weekend. So this year we've got Jean-Michel Jarre, if you've heard of Jean-Michel Jarre. I absolutely have done, yeah. <laughs> so he's playing on the Saturday. We've got Underworld, who are quite an interesting electronic band, Caribou as well. Um, public service broadcasting. Got Brian Cox and Robin Ince doing a recording of their Infinite Monkey Cage. Loads of stuff. So loads of science, loads of uh, art and technology as well as the music. So it should be great fun. So there's no excuse really for any listeners not to go to this. I think if you're the sort of person who listens to the Jogcast, you're the sort of person who ought to go to Blue Dot. Excellent. So what was the website for that again? It's um, discovertheblue.com. Okay. And I should say Blue Dot, in case you were, haven't <laughs> picked it up, is a nod to Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot. Yes. So the sort of the planet Earth in space as a seen from a distance as a little blue dot. So it's all basically about, you know, space and also what we do on the planet. So sort of human creativity, really, as well as science, mu- music, art and so on. Okay, brilliant. Thank you for that. So let's have a look at the questions. So mm-hmm. as ever, we have three listener-submitted questions. Our first one is from Christoph Krayenbull, who asks, what single space mission would you launch in the next 10 years if money was no constraint? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that was a challenging question, but I thought, we, I thought it was fun anyway. Is it, I mean, I think actually um, having constraints is a good thing. Yeah. Because actually it usually um, drives a bit of creativity, actually. If somebody said to you, money's no object, what would you do? <laughs> yeah, because anything's possible, it's almost, it's almost impossible to, to decide what you want. So it's almost a good idea to have sort of a you know, budget, and then you can achieve the maximum you can by being sort of creative. But in these terms, I, I guess, I mean, one of the things we'd always fancy doing, certainly speaking from a radio astronomy background, if we were thinking about, say, doing radio astronomy from uh, space, then I think the idea of building a radio telescope on the far side of the moon would be a nice thing. So you basically block the radio interference of the Earth is blocked by the moon. Um, so you got it's very quiet. Um, that's always a challenge for us in radio astronomy is all the interference we get terrestrially low gravity so you could build it really big because the structure would be easy to build a large structure no wind that's the other problem that you know we have in radio astronomy is wind might blow our big telescopes down so there's loads of reasons why you'd want to do that i think a space-based interferometer would be good i mean maybe you know there is a plan actually to do this in the future with um, a sort of space-based LIGO so the the interferometer that was used to detect gravitational waves uh, recently uh, putting one of those in space would be a, a remarkable thing to be able to do um, there's a mission at the moment that's trying to test out the technology for that called Lisa Pathfinder. And uh, I think that will happen. But if money was no object, then maybe it would happen a bit quicker. Yeah. Not always, because you've got to get the people to do the actual work and just throwing more money at something doesn't obviously solve anything. Stuff to search for life, I guess. Um, so, you know, going for um, searching for life in the solar system, maybe on Enceladus or, or Europa, one of these moons of the giant planets. Those That would be an interesting project as well, I think. So something like that, probably. Of course, you could also add a little bit of funding for the Jogcast if um, <laughs> money was no constraint as well. Just a bit. My <laughs> <laughs> um, next question is from Russ Jenkins. Why do they always say microgravity when they talk about life on the space station? Surely there is pretty much normal gravity, not much less than 1G up there, except that it doesn't feel like that as the station is in orbit. Doesn't that mean that the perceived gravity is neutral? Probably means zero. Yeah, it is an interesting question. You do you do hear people will talk about microgravity on the space station. Um, so I mean, we should. Uh, what I wanted to do was try and do some maths on the radio or maths on the jogcast. <laughs> <if we're gonna, laughs> That's quite risky. Attempt, if we can attempt to do this, but it sort of might illustrate the point. So the space station's at an altitude of about four hundred kilometres above the Earth's surface. The Earth's radius is 
almost 6,400 kilometres. So you're basically talking about the difference between something on the Earth being at 6,400 kilometres from the middle of the Earth and something like the space station being 6,800 kilometres from the middle. So there's actually not a lot of difference in terms of the gravity you feel. So in fact, you can sort of work that out. You, you, we know that the, the acceleration due to gravity that's felt by something that's, say, one kilogram mass, that's given by gm over r squared, where m is the mass of the Earth, r is the radius from the centre of the Earth. Um, so you put in the mass of the Earth, you put in um, the radius of the Earth at the Earth's surface, and what you get is an acceleration due to gravity of 9.8 metres per second per second. That's the classic answer for the acceleration due to gravity. So if you drop something at the Earth's surface, that's the acceleration you get. If you put the same numbers in for the height of the space station, so the radius is slightly larger by 400 kilometres, you get 8.7 metres per second squared. So about uh, 90% of the value at the Earth's surface. So, that, so it is a lower gravity at the height of the space station, but not by much. Yeah. So the question was, you know, what's microgravity, what's zero gravity? Well, although that's the, full, that's the pull of gravity, about 90% of what you feel at the Earth's surface while we're talking now, 90% of that is what you get in the space station. The space station's in orbit. So the space station's actually falling. Um, if you would sort of hold the space station still above the Earth and let go of it, it would drop down towards the, the Earth, of course. It would be pulled towards the centre of the Earth. If you move it sideways, it still falls, but it misses the edge of the Earth because the Earth goes around. So it continually goes round and round, missing the Earth as it falls. That's all an orbit is. So it's free fall. But that would be sort of zero gravity because it's a bit like, and I, don't, and I know this is a horrible thing to imagine, but it's a bit like getting in the lift uh, and the lift cables snapping <laughs> and you <laughs> dropping in the lift. Uh, you'd be in free fall. So you can imagine sort of floating, it was a very high tower, floating inside this lift in the middle and the lift and you would both be accelerating downwards um, at the same rate. So that's that sort of free fall. That would be zero gravity. So the question that Russ asked was, why do we not talk about zero gravity? Why do we talk about microgravity since it's in this sort of free fall orbit? And actually, the, the reasons that I think, you know, they're quite interesting. One, one is that um, the space station, you know, you've seen pictures of Tim Peake or something on the space station and taking lovely photographs of the Earth out the window. There's windows that sort of look down at the Earth and they stay pointing down at the Earth all the time as the space station rotates. So if you can imagine that, that actually means the space station is itself rotating at exactly the same uh, rate at which it moves around the Earth. Mm -hmm. So it's not sort of standing still in space as it orbits, because that would mean the windows would go from looking down at the Earth to looking directly away and then back again over one orbit. So it, the orbit's about 90 minutes. So actually the space station rotates with a period of about 90 minutes. Now you know that if you were to sort of, you know, go on a, a fairground ride or a roundabout or something and you spin that roundabout, you get sort of, you feel this effective acceleration that flings you outwards from this rotating thing. Yeah. So the fact that the space station's rotating means that there's an, uh, there's an effective acceleration felt that pushes you away from the, the centre of the space station. And you can actually work that out. Um, and again, let's do a little bit of maths <laughs> on the jobcast. Let's <laughs> attempt it anyway. For sort of circular motion, if you imagine sort of something rotating in a, you know, in a, in a circular, around a circular, uh, a circular path, um, then the, the acceleration that you feel is given by V squared over R. So V is the, the velocity or the speed at which you're, you're moving and R is the distance from the centre of rotation. So you can actually put into that equation, you can put in the fact that the period of this rotation for the space station is, say, 90 minutes, how long it takes to go around the Earth. So that basically tells you what the speed is because it would be uh, 2 pi R would be the, the path of this thing um, divided by um, the period, 90 minutes. And that gives you an expression for the speed 
which you can then put into that equation for the acceleration of v squared over r. Uh, and what you actually find is an acceleration of one micro g, so one millionth <laughs> of the gravity at the surface of the Earth, you would actually find that that uh, acceleration would be at a distance of seven metres from the centre of the space station. Hmm. If you just if you work, if you work that equation out, which is yeah. quite, quite yeah, interesting. That is so interesting. Actually, you only have to be seven, the space station itself is maybe a hundred metres across. So if you're seven metres away from the sort of centre of rotation of that space station, you would feel this acceleration of one millionth of a g, which is a microgravity. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why we don't talk about zero g. There are other reasons. Basically, uh, it feels drag. So that it's not as if there's a space is a complete vacuum at 400 kilometers you've even got some residual atmosphere but you've also got the interplanetary medium and so on so the space station feels drag and that would be felt as an acceleration on the space station it has to boost its orbit occasionally because because that drag can result in it changing its orbital radius and it might have to accelerate in some way to, to, to adjust its orbit so you'd feel that and even the fact that at 100 meters across the force of gravity you feel from the surface of the Earth changes over the size of the of the space station because you you know one at the far side of the space station you're slightly farther away from the Earth. So I think all those reasons combined mean that you never quite get zero g, and you do get about you know millionths of a a, a, a little g, which is the acceleration of gravity at the Earth's surface. Okay, thank you. So I'm guessing that means you wouldn't be able to detect it yourself if you're in the space station. No, I don't think. So. I mean, these are small. These are yeah, these are yeah. small effects, but it, I think it does explain why. Um, I mean, I think it's true that when they um, when they fire the the little rockets that move the space station around a little bit, whether they're jogging out of the way of an incoming bit of space junk or or whether they're just adjusting their orbit because it's been decaying, I think they switch off some of the more sensitive experiments that require micro gravity because there is a significant acceleration at that point. So that's certainly measurable. I'm not sure whether the astronauts feel that they might do. Not sure about that one, actually, but certainly to switch off the experiments. Okay, thank you very much. Our final question comes from Twitter, from the user Malcontent. The universe is made up of mostly dark matter, which we cannot see. Is it possible the matter is actually held in black holes? So I'm sure we've talked about dark matter on the Jogcast many, many, many times in the past. I think once an episode, at least, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. So we should, and it's appropriate, really, because dark matter is about five times the amount of the visible matter that we can see. <laughs> so we should probably talk about dark matter more than we talk about normal matter. But yeah, there's, the universe is, in terms of matter density, the universe is dominated by uh, by dark matter. And we don't know what it is yet. Um, so the best, um, the most popular suggestions have been that it's some sort of um, particle physics explanation and a particle yet to be yet to be found. But there are, there are other alternatives that have been discussed and, and you do see still being discussed. And, and one of them is, as, as, as malcontent asks, uh, maybe this dark matter is in black holes, and that's why we wouldn't wouldn't see it. So, the sorts of things that you would think about here. One thing is called Big Bang nucleosynthesis. So this is basically um, how the elements are made in the Big Bang, and so there are very you know, brilliant models, really. I mean, one of the great pieces of evidence for the Big Bang. I mean, we've got the expanding universe. So if the universe is expanding, you sort of wind the clock back, you get a Big Bang. You've got uh, the cosmic microwave background. Um, that we see as well. That's another great piece of evidence. But one of the other classic pieces of evidence is you can do the nuclear physics calculations that tell you how the how the elements are built up in the early minutes after the Big Bang. So when you've got you know uh, high densities, the, the particles are packed closely together. You've got high temperatures, so they're whizzing around very fast. 
uh, and you can actually calculate the nuclear reaction rates that let you build up these lightest elements, the hydrogen, the helium, the deuterium, and, and so on. And actually, the matter density, what's called the baryonic matter density, so that's the not sort of normal matter like protons, neutrons, etc. That's a key parameter for these calculations. And you can fit those, the predictions of those models, those big bang nuclear synthesis models, to observations of the abundances of these light elements. So how many of these elements we see in space, maybe in quasar absorption spectra or something like that. Uh, and it turns out that that puts a limit on the uh, density of baryonic matter, which is much lower than the dark matter density. So you can't explain away uh, dark matter with so-called baryonic matter, even if it is dark. So like, you know, brown dwarfs, planets, very faint stars, even these sort of, you know, small black holes and things which might have been formed during the, the evolution of the universe over the 14 billion years since the Big Bang. You could ask whether there are black holes around that have been around from the beginning, actually, which is a different question, really, than black holes that evolved, were formed during the evolution of the universe, like in stellar evolution or something. We don't really understand where the supermassive black holes came from at the centres of galaxies. Okay, and you know they may well have formed early on. We know galaxies merge, and we know that supermassive black holes get bigger because of mergers. But we don't know perhaps when the original black holes formed. However, they're not a good candidate for dark matter because we know dark matter is distributed quite broadly. So if you look at like lensing, gravitational lensing experiments, and so on, we can sort of make maps of where the dark matter is. And it's not as if it's concentrated just in the centres of galaxies, which is where these supermassive black holes are. Yeah. It's spread through the whole galaxy, so it can't be in the form of these supermassive black holes. You can sort of rule that out. But there is another possibility, which are things called primordial black holes, which could be like small black holes that are made right at the beginning of the universe some, at some point. And so they don't... You get round the nuclear synthesis uh, solution by doing that, by forming them early enough. So... Stephen Hawking, you know, came up with this idea of uh, Hawking radiation from black holes, from the sort of event horizon of a black hole. And he worked out that radiation would basically lead very low mass primordial black holes to evaporate. So if you form them at the beginning, they would have all evaporated by now if the masses were less than a million, million kilograms. <laughs> now, it's a bit hard, now, I was actually just thinking, a million, million kilograms, what's a million, million kilograms? It's not hard to imagine. You could compare it to the mass of the sun. The sun is 2 times 10 to the 30. Yeah. So that's about 10 to the minus 18 times the mass of the sun. Okay, so it's more comparable, smaller than the Earth, really, isn't it? So it's smaller yeah. than the Earth, yeah. So in fact, this is my, this is, this is, this is my solution. <laughs> I thought, hmm, I wonder what the volume of Loch Ness is. <laughs> and this does, you know, the Loch Ness monster might be a particularly massive component of Loch Ness, but we'll ignore, ignore the Loch Ness monster, but just the water in Loch Ness apparently has a volume of... Um, seven and a half cubic kilometers okay and if you turn that into a mass a liter of water is a kilogram then you get uh, about seven and a half times 10 to the 12 kilograms and and hawking ruled out these black holes with a mass less than 10 to the 12 so it's about the seventh the mass of loch ness that's any help <laughs> <laughs> so um, so we've so we've ruled out loch ness sized um, black holes mass black holes of course if they were black holes their size would be would be tiny if you turn the whole of the earth mass into a black hole it'd be about the size of a, of a marble or something so if you took the whole of Loch Ness water and turned it into a black hole it'd be very tiny indeed so these are sort of very microscopic black holes those would have evaporated so it can't be that mass range 
And people have been looking, you know, are the, you know, higher mass ones that might still be around. They use things like um, gravitational micro lensing. So this idea that you, you look at, um, you know, you look out through the halo of our galaxy and you can look at um, a star. And if a sort of one of these little black holes or something passes in front of the star, the light from the distant uh, star is bent around it. And you actually get a sort of a focusing of the light. So actually the background star gets a bit brighter. Uh, as something passes across the front of it. And uh, that rules out quite a wide range of masses. There was a recent paper from using Kepler data, the transit telescope, that ruled out sort of things up to the sort of high end of what was possible, which was like getting on for the mass of the moon. Um, so we were ruling out the sort of high end of that. And actually, um, the sort of lower end, so above Hawking's limit of Loch Ness size, Loch Ness mass things, up to, you know, the mass of several times the mass of a comet or something. That was actually recently ruled out by a study that showed that um, those type of primordial black holes would actually get trapped inside neutron stars. Huh. So if you imagine this sort of neutron star sitting there in space and there's a sort of sea of dark matter made up of these primordial black holes, these tiny black holes, uh, they would get, they would sort of collect in the inside, they would get trapped in the inside of a, a, in the inside of a neutron star. And then if they get trapped inside, though, they just accrete the whole mass of the neutron star and the neutron star disappears into the into the black hole. And the fact that we see neutron stars in regions where we know there's dark matter from, from, from these broader lensing studies basically puts limits on how many of those primordial black holes that can be around. And there just isn't enough of them to explain this dark matter um, density. So it really does look like, for lots of different reasons, which I've you know, <laughs> skated over, I know, um, it really does look like we, we can't explain dark matter by hiding stuff inside black holes and so we, we come back to the particle physicists or we come back to um, fiddling our equations of gravity with like modified Newtonian dynamics or something which changes changes the law of gravity to explain away the uh, dark matter effects. Well it's a shame but we've got to leave the particle physicists with something to do. <laughs> it's, it's true they would get bored of the They'd be they? bored. Yeah. They found the Higgs boson so <laughs> and get on with the dark matter search. They've pretty much finished their job now haven't they? <laughs> yeah. So Thank you very much, Tim O'Brien. Um, hopefully, we can get you on again in less than two years <laughs> this time. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you very much. Okay, cheers. Thanks for that, Tim. And now on to the feedback. I believe we have some post. Yes, yes, we do have some post. Here we go. So we've got a beautiful card um, with a, a photograph stuck to the front of it um, that looks like the sender took it themselves, which is really amazing because it's a beautiful photograph of the Milky Way. Um, and it's captioned Death Valley at night, North Cross and Star Vega over 20 mule wagon. Oh, yeah, there's also a 20 mule wagon. I totally knew what that was. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lovely wagon. Uh, and inside we have uh, some, some words. Hello, Jodcasters. Thanks for putting on such a great show. I love how you put science, astronomy and down to earth personality together. Your casual personal approach to the show is what I love best. Thanks again, Rob Connolly. P.S. I picked this card for you at a recent Celestial Centennial event at Death Valley National Park in California. It's a great place to visit if you're ever looking for a great sky in the States. Come visit. Okay, so Rob didn't actually take the picture himself. It's by a fellow called Wally Pachalka uh, from the America the Beautiful at Night series. So thank you, Rob, for picking out this lovely picture for us. Thanks very much. Very nice. That sounded like an offer of a a trip to America as well. Yeah, yeah. Can we all come visit? We can stay stay in the 20-mile wagon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) 
And on Facebook, we have a message from Philip Blurish, who says, I once used a computer program to predict the next transit of Mercury, but it didn't happen. I couldn't understand why until I realised that Mercury was passing behind the Sun. Moral of the tale, all second-order equations have two roots. Ah, that's a tricky one. Yeah. Cool. Well... At least you worked it out. Yeah, yeah, that's clever. Probably have been taking me a lot longer. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks for all the likes and shares. Uh, On Twitter, uh, we have a message from Susan uh, on May the 8th. Uh, the Jadcast, love it, listen through the night, then just can't sleep. Oh, thank you, Susan. Uh, that's, a, that's a good reason not to be able to sleep. It's a better reason than spiders. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for all the follows and retweets. Uh, and you can now find us on iTunes. Please rate us and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. And thanks to Professor Philippa Browning and Dr. Sambit Roy Chowdhury for the interviews. The editors were Alex Clark, George Bendo, Christina Illy and Charlie Walker. The producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time, Jod, jod on! on. And on Facebook, we have a message from Philip Lurich, who says, I once used a computer program to predict the next transit of Mercury, but it didn't happen. I couldn't understand why until I realised that Mercury was... And I once used a computer program. I'm going to... I can't speak today. Oh, no. Oh, Is it because no. you're nervous about having to wear a suit? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. Oh, don't be. You look amazing in the suit. Oh, no, you will. No, 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 you will. No. Everyone looks amazing in a suit, no, trust me. Not it's, me. It's impossible not to look good. You look like James Bond. <laughs> James Bond, the crystal meth years. Um, <laughs> James Bond, the PhD years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Anyway. That's not going to be a good look. Oh, deep breaths, everyone. <laughs> Fleetingly return to the script now. Yeah. And on Facebook, we have a message from Philip Blurish who says, I want.